Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Mike Carey, a writer who you'll find working in comics, novels, and screenplays. He adapted his own book, The Girl with All the Gifts, to the screen. The result was a terrific zombie thriller that premiered at Midnight Madness at TIFF last year and is now available on iTunes and On Demand and turns up on DVD and Blu-ray in the U.S. and Canada next Tuesday, April 25th. His new novel, The Boy on the Bridge, will be released on May 2nd in North America and May 4th in the U.K. In a cool attic space over Carnaby Street in London, Mike chose L.A. Confidential, Curtis Hansen's 1997 adaptation of James Elroy's sprawling 1990 novel, starring Guy Pearce and Russell Crowe as two detectives who get swept up in the seething morass of corruption and retribution that is the Los Angeles Police Department in the early 1950s, it's a mammoth narrative distilled to a few personal threads, packed full of incident and character, and featuring a couple of really nasty swerves. Nominated for nine Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, it won two. Kim Basinger was named Best Supporting Actress, and Hansen and his co-writer Brian Helgeland won Best Adapted Screenplay. And 20 years later, it's as good as noir gets. This is someone else's movie. I guess I, w- I wanted to go for a movie that's one of my favourites, one that I keep going back to and keep um, discovering new things in. It's a movie that um, that repays repeated watching. It's full of uh, you know full full of little hidden gems and charms and beauties. Um, but also, I think it's just it's fascinating to look at it in relation to the novel. Um, it's fascinating to look at the production process and the decisions that they made about making it. It's you know it's something that, where you can talk about lots of different aspects of the film. It's it's you know it's just a really a really fascinating artifact to study, mm. and I love it. And as a as a novelist and screenwriter, mm. it is a, an amazing lesson, I suppose, in what to keep and what to throw away. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Elroy himself was a huge fan. Was, was sort of in awe of what um, of what the screenwriters had done. Um, yeah, he pointed out that the the novel has about eight plots, and they chose the best three, uh, the three that sort of um, carried the through line of the, of the three main characters: uh, Bud White, Edmund Exley, and uh, Jack Vincennes, um, and sort of brought them to. He said it's it's three men working out their destiny, yeah. and they they kept everything that uh, that related to that and ruthlessly cut back everything else. You know, the novel is. The novel is amazing, but it's a mess structurally. It doesn't matter. You know, that's the way Elroy writes. Yeah, it's sort of ferocious ramble through, yeah. through historical fact and his invented fiction. And really, what it, I, I love that about Elroy is that he is just screaming story at you. Yes. Page after page in this and, and in other, I mean, even in My Dark Places, which is, you know, a memoir. He still sort of stops at points to give you ten pages of something that he cannot not tell you about right then. For, ferocious ramble is a great way of describing it. Yeah, um, it's a great... Uh, writing style that I have absolutely no idea how to capture, and, and it's extraordinary how um, you know, obviously he um, he's writing about a period, um, and he's he's spot on in sort of giving you the sense of that time and and what was happening to LA at that time, and what it was like to be there. But he's also dragging in contemporary events. You know, so like the the story starts with the Night Owl massacre, and to some extent it plays out the consequences of this this horrendous crime. Um, where a whole bunch of innocent people are um, 
kidnapped in a diner, dragged to the freezer at the back of the diner, and then basically just mercilessly executed. Um, and that was a real crime, but it wasn't in period. It was happening at the time, I presume, when he was planning the novel. It's 1980 or something like that. Um, it was a Bob's Big Boy on uh, La Cienega Boulevard where, where this happened. And presumably it, you know, it struck a chord with him, and he brought, brought that into, uh, into the novel. So that, that, that sort of palimpsest. Mm. of past and present is fascinating and of course that then in a different way becomes part of the cinematography <laughs> of the film, part of the uh, the mise-en-scene in that um, they only had a budget of what was it, 30, yeah. 35 some, some you know, paltry sum really for what they were doing uh, and it was a period drama so there were things they couldn't do and they got around it by just not doing them, they found places in modern day LA that would stand in perfectly for, um, for period LA, for, for, the, for the LA of that time. And um, I think that, that, that's, that's amazing. Um, I bought the DVD when it first came out and it had the best extra of any DVD I've ever bought, which is an interactive map of Los Angeles. Yeah. And you can click on any of the locations in the film and find out where they were really, where they were really shot. Yeah, I wish more films would do that because especially in Los Angeles and New York, the, the sense of those cities um, the Nice Guys is a great example. Uh, Shane Black's film mm -hmm. last year, which recreates mostly digitally, but recreates 1977 Los Angeles in perfect green. I mean, he's he's added smog to the air, and there's this there's the drive by the Tower Records where there's a Jaws two billboard that probably didn't exist there but should have. Yeah, and it feels like even though none of this is real, it feels like this is the Los Angeles that we remember. And L.A. Confidential is. The film is certainly more concerned with the Los Angeles as it was. It's uglier, it's messier, no one is a hero, everything is... Compromised. Yeah, it's pulp. I mean, it's classic noir pulp imagery, but yes. it's also clean lines and stately frames, and there's a sense of, of this sort of dignity that's dying throughout yes. the entire thing as all the characters are gradually disillusioned even further. Uh, another parallel with a film I saw recently, although this, this is, this is going to sound bizarre, but... Um, no, no, this is what we do. This is great. Fantastic Beasts. Okay. I, mean, I, I yes, love the... that. I, I actually prefer it to most of the Potter films because it takes the magic into a, a, a believable, very, very beautifully realized period New York. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, there's something about sort of uh, fascinating about forcing the, uh, the the magical characters to interact with ordinary people on ordinary streets. It yeah. just it just sort of somehow it sharpens the your your your, um, your sense of it. It's funny. The thing that I like the most about any of the Harry Potter movies is the third one, where Quaron finally puts them in street clothes, mm. and they and you can be reminded that this is happening to real kids instead of you know, children in, in fancy robes in yeah. Fantasyland. Instead of fairy tale characters. They venture yeah. out into the world other than the introduction and, and the occasional epilogue. I think there's one bit at the very beginning of the seventh film where they're, or maybe it's the sixth one I've lost track, but they're flying around on, on uh, Jubilee Bridge or something, mm -hmm. Millennium Bridge. And that's London, and they never deal with it again. Yeah. Big magic happened. Eh, it happens. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the New York of Fantastic Beasts is, other than the strange exaggerated stereotypical stuff that they have to do with the muggle characters um, with just the hey I have bagels you know I'm a baker and that kind of thing but there's a yeah there's a humanity to it that's weird I'm not as big a fan of the film um, just because I found Redmayne's performance so mannered um, yeah, I get it he's decided he's a little aspergery but you know look at people talk to people you're, you're supposed to be this this animal tamer at least look at the animals no that's a fair point <laughs> I, having said that it's probably my favourite Redman performance I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not generally an Eddie Redman fan no me neither
Um, but, but yeah, so, so the, 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 the way that the city is presented and the intelligent way that they use the city's present to tell the story of its past, I thought was, um, was enthralling. I also thought it was fascinating that what, what one of the LD reviews said, this is the best approximation of um, classic noir style that has ever been realized in color. Mm. Oh, that's um, a, yeah. because, because it's color palette and you know, they don't waste any time trying to ape the, um, the stylistic furniture of right. classic noir it's actually the, the sort of the moral core that they're interested in and in that respect I think it's just it's pretty close to perfection um, I, th- I think one of the things that Curtis Hansen said about you know, coming to work on it was that he loved the novel because it presents these utterly contemptible people these people who when you meet when you meet them, your first impression is, "Oh my God!" You know, I would I would I would stay well clear of that if I met someone like that in real life. And then it makes you understand them, and it forces you to care about them. Yeah, they are the only heroes available. Yes, and that's that's the problem of all noir fiction. I think really, I mean, you have to have people who are morally murky to be in this world in the first place, and then those who, you know, the classic Bogart hero who just can't look the other way. Yeah. Finally, now it all catches up to him. And, and, and it's not even, you know, these, these flawed people are presented with a, um, a challenge that they have to rise to. It's not even just, you know, okay, this is the moment when they, 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 they transcend their limitations. Because actually, they go down before they go up. Um, you know, if Bud White has one um, um, shibboleth, it's that he would never hit a woman. And he's made to hit a woman. Yeah. You know, he sees himself as the protector of women against brutal men. And he ends up beating up. Lynn Bracken, um, Edmund Exley, is incredibly buttoned up and, and sort of morally, uh, morally upright and uncompromised, and yet he's forced to break the rules in order to solve the crime. So, so each of them is sort of like dragged to their own net here before they can even begin to, uh, to, to, to rise, I guess. Yeah. It's a remarkable choice, too, for Hansen at all, because nothing he'd done previously... He was such a strange career. I mean, his, he's, he's not a journeyman. You, want to, you sort of want to look at it that way, because he shifted genres and played around. Um, Philip uh, Iskov did uh, Wonder Boys on the show a couple of months ago, and having gone back to that for the first time in, I don't know, probably ten years at least, I was really struck by how utterly unlike LA Confidential it is, other than the attention to character. Yeah. It's it's looser, it's lighter, it's handheld half the time. There's an awareness of human frailty that's almost ad- adoring instead of um, enigmatic or conflicted. I mean, L.A. Confidential. I don't know that I, I I know that Hanson and Elroy know what is right and what is wrong, but the film allows for the possibility that everything is right and everything is wrong in a way that a lot of Hanson's other films are much more direct and clear about. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it, it stands out, doesn't it? It's an anomaly in his career. Yeah. It's, um, it's an anomaly for quite a lot of the people involved. And it must have been it must have been a really hard sell. Do you think? I mean, I think so. I mean, when when it came to TIFF, it was almost an afterthought because it was opening the following week. This happens at the, the Toronto Film Festival all the time. Awards contenders will launch there, but also you'll get movies from major studios that have a nice you know a cohort of famous people for the red carpet, and then open the following week this year. Um, Oh, what was it? Magnificent Seven opened a couple of weeks later. The Xavier Dillon film went directly in after premiering. I mean, it played at Cannes, but it came to TIFF and then opened right. in English Canada. L.A. Confidential, I, th- I want to say it screened on the Saturday or Sunday and then opened the following Friday. 
Uh, and no one at that time saw it as anything other than, oh, the new film from Curtis Hansen, that could be interesting, and who are these actors that we don't know playing Americans? I mean, we knew who Russell Crowe and, and uh, Guy Pierce were, but I don't think they'd had any kind of major exposure in America. I mean, Pierce was in Priscilla, yeah. and Crowe was in Romper Stomper, but I think those were the only films that had made it out, and as I say that, I'm probably forgetting something really obvious that Crowe was in. No, that, that, this, that, that, that sounds about right. right for, at least for American films. And, and I think, um, yeah, there was a lot of uh, feeling at Warner that actually this was a big mistake to, yeah. to, to put, um, you know, um, non-Americans and unknown non-Americans in these key roles. Yeah, yeah I think, Spacey was the big star. Yeah. And that was, that uh, was the lure, certainly at the festival. On the back of Usual Suspects. Two years later, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I believe that a third act, a third uh, Antipodean actor was turned down on, on the explicit grounds we could not have three Australians. And it's, it's kind of ironic because Pierce wasn't born in Australia. He was, I think he was born in the UK yeah. and moved out there. And um, Crow is from New Zealand. From New Zealand yeah. Yeah. So they didn't have any, uh, any Australian. Yeah. It's amazing, though, the, the, way that, um, the way that Buzz has its own momentum separate from the film. I mean, we heard about it as this troubled production. And I don't know where that started, but when it arrived at TIFF, people were sort of muttering about it. And maybe it was just because the release date was so close to the festival play date that you assume that they're just doing this for a little glamour and then spitting it out into theaters. And it did open pretty wide. Mm -hmm. But we saw it and, wow, that's not a troubled film. I mean, if the production was troubled, which I'm not aware of, it certainly doesn't show. I, I just don't know where the cloud came from when it yeah, arrived. Possibly because it had been it had been in development for a long, long time, mm-hmm. and it had been kicking around yeah, yeah. Uh, before Hansen got to it um, for, for for ages. And I think um, you know, Warner's had called, having acquired it, they'd called on the um, on the property, uh, and and this idea had sort of grown up that it was unfilmable. Well, certainly if you tried to adapt the book. If you tried to do it faithfully, yeah, yeah if you tried yeah. to do it um, sort of like scene for scene, you would, well, you'd, probably, series, you'd end yeah. up with an HBO 10-part series. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that, that reinvention, I think, is, is, is awe-inspiring. I think structurally, it's, um, it's wonderful. I think in terms of the coherence of its tone, it's wonderful. And where it sort of introduces new material that wasn't in the book, um, the obvious example being... Um, Rollo Tomasi, um, it works. You know that, that, in a way, that's a really cheesy beat. Whenever you try to describe it to a friend, you apologise for it, but it works so well yeah. in City. I think partly because um, the scene in which Vincennes goes to Dudley Smith and sort of pours out his heart to him, and more or less. I mean, he's sort of confessing to having a conscience mm-hmm. at that point, isn't he? Um, well, this is what I mean about the characters being forced to. Do right, yeah. not the right thing, but to do right, to to simply be noble, or at least upstanding, or at least not turn away. And in the case and in the case of Vincennes, he almost feels like he doesn't this know is, how it's yeah. happened. Yeah, he's shocked, which is so great. I seem to have grown a conscience. What do I do? And he, he goes to the one man he feels can sort of um, talk him through this, <laughs> yes. and it's it's Completely the wrong man. Wrong choice. <laughs> um, and of course, Dudley Smith doesn't. Um, are we allowed to give spoilers? I presume we're allowed to yeah, give spoilers. Yeah, if, if, I mean, you know, 20 years later, if you're watching, if you're listening to this, you have seen LA Confidential. And if not, press pause, come back. Dudley Smith doesn't die in, in the novel. Um, he doesn't ever die at any point in the quartet. I think he ends, he ends white jazz living out his retirement in a, in a nursing home. You know, he gets a happy ending. Yeah, he's untouched. Um, and and yeah, the way the way they handle that in the movie, I think, is is incredible. And yeah, that, that it's Exley of all people mm-hmm. who shoots him in the back, who sort of like you know kills a kills a suspect rather than bringing him in, yeah. is yeah, it's the perfect the perfect final beat. Yeah, it's um, 
it's a movie that is full of essential noir elements, recognizable beats and tropes, and they are still felt. Like, you feel them land. Uh, the role of Tomasi moment, you're right, it is very silly. And I was kind of hoping there'd be another scene later where uh, Exley starts telling the same story, and we just discover he's literally told everybody. Right. And so it would diffuse it a little bit. it feel less like a coincidence. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because that's how noir works. And you're absolutely right. It feels totally organic in the moment. Especially, and you know, Spacey, my God, he's so good in that little window of time from about 92 to maybe 2000, just before he started doing K-Pax and things like that, where it was, and pay it forward, where he wanted to, he just wanted to be a nice person on film for a while and missed the thing that is so elemental to him, which is that we don't want him to be nice. We yeah. want snarky, we want bitchy. And he is so great in... LA Confidential because we need that flash of intelligence across his eyes before he says Rolo Tomasi to know that he's setting him up there's no question why that's happening in the moment and there's again no exposition no spoken dialogue it just happens yeah it's a message in a bottle it's yeah. the only thing he can do and yeah. it's such a great moment for him because it's, he's on his way out the big twist of the film of course is that the biggest star you recognize is out at this point in the movie but oh it feels like a victory yeah it does how did it play when you when you saw it? Um, well, I can't go back. I can't think about the first time I saw it now because I've seen it so many times since. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I fell in love with it straight away, um, and I, I, yeah, I must have seen it about six or seven times now. Um, most of that initially was me sort of forcing other members of the family right. to go back and watch it with me. Been there, okay. um, and then yeah, every, every so often I'll just get it out again because it's you know it's it's one of those sort of like reliable bits of storytelling that you can always enjoy mm-hmm. immersing yourself in. I mean, I, I, I don't want to get sort of dragged in, dragged sideways into talking about Usual Suspects, but it is astonishing that those two those two thrillers um, happened within that tiny space. Um, I, I would I would assume that. Um, Hansen and Helgelin were already working on the screenplay um, for, yeah. for, for LA Confidential when, when Usual Suspects hit, although I'm sure they approached Spacey because of because of Verbal Kind. Mm. But, uh, well, Suspects was, I'm trying to remember if it was at Sundance or at Cannes, but it definitely played before it opened in August of 95 in the States and came to TIFF back when they were still doing that, when they were willing to play films that, hadn't, that had already opened in their native countries, even if it was America. So... Spacey seemed to break then, and then Seven came out right around the same time and exploded. Mm-hmm. But I'm just in my head. In my head, I'm sure Helgeland and and Hanson would have known they wanted him before that opened. Okay. Or maybe they saw an early. I mean, it's certainly possible they saw an early version of it. Polygram wasn't shy. But but they're, they're two of the finest thrillers ever to be made. I think thriller movies ever to be made, and they're, and they're, they're completely different mm-hmm. in t- in terms of tone and style, and in terms of the whole approach to the storytelling. You know, um, there's a kind, there's a layer of um, of cleverness and and um, metatextual cleverness to to usual suspects. That yeah. um, that it's that, playful, isn't it's, it? It's it's very playful. Yeah, I mean the whole thing kind of deconstructs itself at the end, so that um, you know you're, you're left with nothing but that you know the, the sort of final beat of him walking to the car, yeah. and then you sort of reflect on what you've just seen and think, well, how much of that was ever true? Yeah. Um, I for a while I was convinced that you could make the argument that Benicio del Toro didn't exist, that Fencer isn't real, that he's just made up, which is why we can't understand him. Because <laughs> He doesn't survive. He doesn't. He's not on the boat. He he's out of the story before 
verbal is captured. Yeah. And so you can invent whatever you want for that because there's no way to back it up. True. But then I realized, of course, that he would have been in the lineup. So there's some evidence of it he, in the initial lineup. That's got to be okay. Yeah, that, 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 right? that, that, that's that. a thing that has a piece of paper connecting to true to verbal. But then I decided that it was simply because Kaiser Soze just doesn't care about him because he's not important to his story. He really has no function in the plot other than to be intimidating once or twice. And so the fact that he doesn't have any real discernible dialogue, I just I imagine that in Soze's mind it's hand waving. Like, he said something. <laughs> And we see it, and we all accept it. The audience just buys it. Yeah. And then you go back and wait, well, hang on, that could actually be one of the most ingenious meta choices for the narrative. I mean, I, I've never, damn it, I've interviewed Singer twice, I've never asked him about it. But uh, I just, I'd love to know when that started. I mean, is it Del Toro just being difficult and then deciding, ah, I don't care about any of this, I'm going to deliver it like it doesn't matter because I'm above it, or is it all in the text? Was it part of the script? That, that's fascinating. Oh, I have to follow up. Macquarie, if you're listening. <laughs> somebody, somebody asked Pete Postlethwaite um, a, cu- a couple of years later, you know, so w- was your character Kaiser Soze? He said, I have no idea. You, know, you, you, can, <laughs> you can kind of read it any way you like. It's, yeah. uh, it's that open. Yeah, we just know it's not Gabriel Byrne. But I, I love the moment when um, Benicio del Toro is reading out the, um, the line, yes. you know, give me the money, motherfucker, or whatever it is. And, yeah. Um, the, the, and, the, and the guy, the guy who's um, who's sort of like talking to them from off screen says in English, please. And Benicio del Toro for a moment looks really hurt, like yeah. you know that that one went home. Yeah. Oh, that played so beautifully in the theater. I just these movies, people are going to discover them on disc alone, and it's such a different relationship to the big surprises, the big shocks. I mean, the, it's inevitably someone will say, "Oh, that wasn't that big a deal," and. You don't know what it's like to watch a movie with 500 people who have just had the air knocked out of them. Mm. And it's uh, Spacey's exit in L.A. Confidential. Even, um, yeah, even Bud's first act of violence was genuinely shocking when when you see that come out of Crow. Uh, And I'd seen Romper Stumper and I knew him from that. And it's like, okay, I know he can be violent, but the hurt in his eyes is something new. And the scene where he he hits Lim Bracken and then realizes what he's done. Yeah, you know, a man in free fall. It's, yeah. it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, and it's rare that you see. I mean, this is you know, this is Casablanca. This is the Maltese Falcon. All the essential noirs where someone violates his own code. We've seen that a million times, but we've never seen it with an emotional rubber band action. Where as soon as the violence is committed, you can see how sorry he is. That's something that Crow brought, and I was really like, almost surprised to see it come out of him. Yeah, it's, 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 but, the, but the film is littered with those moments, I think. Mm-hmm. There's, there's not a single scene that isn't a set piece. It's, it's like, that's, that's the wrong way of putting it. But you know how a lot of thrillers, they'll, and including Usual Suspects, will build up to a moment, will build up to a, a kind of um, a core? Yeah. LA Confidential is all core, Yes. pretty much, from start yeah. to finish. There, there, there's not a single dud beat. There isn't a single thing that hasn't been thought through um, and, and sort of um, polished to a... To a fine gloss. Yeah, it's um, it's an exquisite work of adaptation, and it's also just a really good movie. You can go and read the book later and see all the stuff that was it left was cut out. out and, yeah, and it's it's a monster. I mean, it's a huge read, but it's satisfying in a completely different way because yeah, now you have background, now you have data, now you have all the facts. But, and, and the rest of the cast. Yeah. This is playing out against a much bigger backdrop. Yeah, it just, the room gets bigger. 
Uh, and, and across the span of time, it's like uh, the novel covers mo- most of a decade, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and that is only a chapter in in, in the bigger the bigger story yeah. of the quartet. So, were you, how familiar were you with Elroy's work when you saw the film? Not at all. Uh-huh. Not at all. That was what brought me to uh, to Elroy. I think I had read My Dark Places, but that was it. Well, maybe, no, that's probably right. And I'm still not. Um, I don't read much much in the way of thriller. Mostly when I read genre for pleasure, I'll read fantasy, sci-fi, horror. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's my that's my comfort zone. About Howard Chaikin in Norway. Um, God, I love his work. In uh, Norway. In Norway at the Raftus Convention, Chaikin was genuinely shocked by how ignorant me and Mike Collins were. He said, "Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't actually want to share this panel with you guys. I want you, when you sit over there, and I'll do my own little panel over here." But afterwards, um, he gave me a list of stuff that I had to to go away and read um, some of which was just excellent so I, I was introduced to Dennis Lehane oh, yeah. through that and uh, Don Winslow um, Power of the Dog I think it just came out and Jake and said you know if you read one thing from this list read Power of the Dog um, it also had the the Jack Reacher novels on it and when I when I next met Jake and he said so how are you getting on with the box I said Dude, I can't get on with Reacher he said you fucking degenerate <laughs> I yeah, not a fan either. I think it's just my problem with the Jack Reacher novels is, and the films as well, by extension, is that you create someone who can't be beaten, and therefore there's no tension. He's going to fix this, whatever yeah, it is. Absolutely. And coming back to Logan, the wonderful thing about Logan is that he's totally vulnerable in it. You know, yeah, you see, you've seen him as the invulnerable killing machine, and now you see him as an old man who's kind of kind of losing it, kind of on the brink of of falling apart. Yeah. And then this, uh, yeah, since we're talking about adaptation, there's a very interesting kind of. Um, uh, Weaving together of yeah. different um, different stories from the comics, it's, it's obviously sort of loosely inspired by Mark Miller's Old Man Logan. Yeah. But um, X twenty three doesn't figure in there. Um, you know, she's been brought in from a different storyline. Donald Pierce and the Reavers are coming from somewhere else. So someone is like cherry picking their best, their favorite um, their favorite X Men. Yeah, and it's uh, remarkable to see that when a year ago we saw. You know, someone, some idiot, attempt to stitch the Dark Knight Returns and Death of Superman together, and mm. uh, you needn't comment on this. I'm angry enough for both of us. <laughs> I just, I, it just felt like someone at some point really loved those stories and wanted to do them right, and then this is what happened. And it, 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 it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, at the moment, the uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I, I know um, the X Men movies aren't; they're Fox. It's 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 a, it's a separate entity, but the the, the Marvel franchises seem to be so right seem to be hand, be, being handled so deftly yeah. um, and DC just although they've got these great properties these great characters uh, have yet to find a way to um, to express them on film with a few exceptions yeah. in, in, a, in a way that uh, that coheres and has the um, the sort of the grandeur of the comics I mean I, I, I think comics are um, comics are fascinating because they're, they're, they're sort of Hugely sprawling, interconnected stories. They have a kind of, um, they just, they just have a vastness and complexity that is very difficult to to bring to film and TV. But uh, but Marvel is is sort of managing to do it. Um, in the past, what's happened is you've got you had a movie franchise, and they never moved more than two movies away from the origin. And then it's like panic. Got to have to get a new actor in, so you have to retell the origin story and start again from scratch. So you never got to the point where the stories were. We're sort of playing off each other, and now with things like the Avengers, 
um, and the uh, Iron Man Civil War and so on. Was, it, was that an Iron Man or Captain America? Captain America Civil War. But it might as well have been an Iron Man because they know how valuable down it is. Yes. Um, you, so you're starting to get that kind of um, that that kind of sense of the the, the stories coming together and, and moving through each other, mm-hmm. which and is what what I love about the comics. Yeah, and if you still want to make a Doctor Strange where no one else interacts at all. Uh, except for the stinger, um, where where Thor shows up because somebody has to, because that's how these movies work. You can have a fully contained origin story that doesn't depend on the rest of it, but still sat. I mean, it is Iron. It's Iron Man with magic. It's the same story. You yeah, know, wounded yeah. genius becomes superhero. The, the, the other thing I loved about it, so I'll come back to LA Confidential sure, in no, a second, but I love that they actually used, in a way, in, in, a, in a very strange way, they went back to Ditko's way of showing magic. Magic yeah. as a physical force that you can see moving between people and you know Dicko has when 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 strange fights Mordo it's it's like battering rams made of magic and shields made of magic and it's like there's a, a visceral physical quality to it and they they got that across really well I yeah. thought I mean they modernized it but they stuck to the idea of it yeah whoever came up with the idea of pinch zooming for magic because it is instantly understandable to an audience that's been using smartphones for 10 years yes you just you can make something bigger or smaller by doing this with your hand and of course you can. We do that every day. It's just magic now. It's it's ingenious. And it they've really been kind is. of working towards it with Tony Stark's touchscreens in all the movies. There's a there's a moment in I think the second Avengers movie where he flips a piece of data from a screen to another screen and yeah. just does it. And then you see Cumberbatch do it in Doctor Strange. It's like, that's the same move. They've just found a new context for it. That's true. They're teaching us how to watch these movies before they even make them. That's kind of awesome, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. So there were meant to be two different sequels to LA Confidential. Yeah. I mean, um, they, 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 they tried it out as a TV series. Speaking of franchises. Um, I, I haven't seen the pilot. Apparently there's a newer version of the DVD, because I've still just, still just got the one that came yeah, out in 1998. Yeah. Is it on the Blu-ray, do you think? Uh, it must be now, yeah, yeah. I would think. But, uh, so you, you can now get the pilot. Um, uh, as a sort of fe- extra feature on the DVD, but I haven't seen it. No, um, but Hansen and Helgeland were meant to be working before he died. They were meant to be working on a, another movie, weren't they? Which would was it an, another adaptation of the book? No, it was, no, it was, it was n- nothing to do with Alroy at all. Uh, apparently, part of the original deal was that they, the new what was the new agency would then own those yeah. characters. Oh, of course. Well, it's the same way uh, Fox ended up with the X Men, right? Yeah, they kept I certain guess. pieces. Um, I wonder, I wonder how Alroy feels about that deal. But um, yeah. so yeah, they, they they were able to sort of they were theoretically able to take the characters forward in a way that had no relationship to the books at all. They could just do their own thing with them. So I think that was the plan to take um, uh, Exley and White on another outing. I won't worry about. I mean, I understand that these stories are um, sequential. You're you're allowed to make more of a thing, but. The whole point of LA Confidential is that this is their greatest challenge, right? So any sequel is going to feel less epochal, less important, potentially. Yeah. I mean, you, you, then you challenge yourself with coming up with a big enough story. I mean, it's the Jack Reacher problem. You know, like, well, he defeated Werner Herzog in the first one. How do we fix this? And like, what's more scary than Werner Herzog without his fingers? Yeah, no, quite a few things, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, you're, 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 you're right. I think it would have been it would have been difficult to find a, a second story that was the equal of the characters mm-hmm. the, uh, that, that sort of um, um, put them on their mettle in the same way. Because yeah. basically, they've yeah they've just been through the fight of their lives and they've found out who they are in the process and have to live with that in all 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 the sort of many and various ways. Mm-hmm. And the case embodies so many things about Los Angeles and racism and, and the legacy of the city's police department that. 
anything, a second case of that magnitude would maybe be on the nose. It would be too much, too obviously uh, representative of something. It would feel like a screenwriter working out a problem rather than, I mean, I'm just guessing. Mm. But it, would, it feels like it would be hard to do another one. Yeah, it would be much easier to do it badly than to do it well. Mm. I think I'm sorry. This is jumping around a bit, oh, but uh, one what, what of the other things I was reading up on the on the film um, prior to, to coming in today, and um, I was reading about uh, how how Guy Pearce got into role. Who Curtis Hanson thought it would be a great idea if he actually worked shadows from L.A. cops, and that did not work out no, at all. No, uh, he didn't like them as people. He, <laughs> he, he he found them very very hard to like. The, the guy he was particularly partnered with was openly racist, and um, they they got into a number of arguments. And finally, P.S. decided he would just look at older movies set in L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and sort of um, he said it was really useful because. If you look at sort of um, cop thrillers of the 1930s and 40s, he said there was a there was a woodenness to the characters, which was just right for Exley, yeah. <laughs> because he's he's got that kind of um, that humourless um, focus, uh, which, which is kind of like it's it's you know, one half sort of ambition to live up to his father's legacy, and one half kind of prim doing it by the book, and, yeah. and the two things just work really nicely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I thought casting Pierce was. A fascinating choice because as a bodybuilder, like that's how it started, he doesn't look anything like a person would have looked in 1940-anything. No. The, um, there's this story of an actor who worked with Brana on Frankenstein saying that it was very strange to see the film and have so many scenes of a shirtless man running around with muscles that didn't exist in the 19th century. You had to be, you know, you nautilus those things. You can't just... Wait, you can't just make them through effort. Yeah. Uh, same with Nate Parker in *The Birth of a Nation*. He's supposed. Yes, the argument is that he was. Uh, he's playing Nat Turner, who was a slave and did a lot of hard manual labor. But he has like he's lighting his six pack in the film, and it's just this strange instant distraction from what the story is about. Yeah, it's, and, it's a, an anachronistic six pack. Yeah, and because you don't see Exley without a shirt on, or I think there's an undershirt, a vest at one point, but because you never really concentrate on his body he just looks tense and coiled because he's no he's got no fat mm. his body is so lean that he looks like he's consuming himself from the inside yeah in his moral rectitude it's, it's a great uh, it's a great look for that yeah, character yeah. yeah i was just and you know and bud is a little doughy and and crow let himself puff a bit and you see a kind of weariness in him that you wouldn't see necessarily in, well, it certainly wasn't present in Romper Stomper, but you know, the physical transformation as well as the emotional performance, there's something different about that character. And you put them together and you have this tiny little wiry man next to this beefier, angrier man. Mm. He's at least, yeah, in, by, the contrast is instant and immediate and it's just wonderful. And then I'm, now I'm thinking of Crow and the Nice Guys, uh, who's like twice his size. In, in LA Confident that he was in LA Confidential yeah, yeah. and it's just this great comment on that character I, I was thinking as you were talking about anachronistic nudity um, I, I love the um, the Colin Firth Jennifer Ely um, Pride and Prejudice oh, yes. the, the BBC one um, but there's a moment in that when um, Colin Firth coming home to Pemberley decides to stop off and have a swim in the lake yes. and he strips off that's what people want to, to the waist and um, I can remember sitting, sitting on, the, on the sofa with my wife and saying yeah, that, that's, that's not in the novel that's, that's, <laughs> and then I do not give a damn right. I mean, every woman I know would argue that it should have been yeah. in the novel but it's essential so many crushes were formed in that in that lake 
but it's um, yeah, the markers for physical intimacy. Um, a lot of modern adaptations of Jane Austen will have the characters kiss, for example, and the um, uh, the lovely angly sense of sensibility ends with a, a kiss between um, the, the male and female leads and um, of course it's, it's just wrong you don't, they, 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 would, they would never do it in a public place yes exactly they, they would barely ever touch in a public place perhaps a subtle hand holding in a carriage yeah but nothing that might uh, yeah. yeah it's true I mean uh, Love and Friendship captures that really well the yes. film um, it, when it ends it's simply people in a room agreeing to be happy which is sort of a nice way to go read or I married him that sort of thing it's just we're going to get. We're going to skip past all the unpleasant physical contact. The the, the, the actually the, the 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 sort of the the most satisfying emotional moment I think in the Ang Lee movie is the moment when she realizes that the brother who's married is not the brother that she wants, mm. um, and therefore that she still has a has a shot yeah. at. Um, and she just bursts into tears. She just bursts into hysterical tears and runs out of the room because she suddenly realizes she has a future or she has a chance at a future. That's a great mm-hmm. moment. Yeah. It's the possibility of happiness. It's something that keeps coming back on this show. Which, which of course, um, is how L.A. Confidential ends as well, you know, with, with um, both Axley and Bud White, in, in um, perhaps in ways they didn't, they didn't expect, getting their heart's desire, yeah. getting, you know, what Fleur de Lee promises, <laughs> whatever, whatever you desire. Um, you know, Axley gets to be in the detective division having previously been told by Dudley Smith that he really needs to be somewhere else. Yeah. Well, he removed that obstacle. Yes, so. true. There you go. And, uh, and Bud gets, um, you know, gets the girl. Yeah. So it's a he has beautiful. to live with it. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful ending. I haven't even mentioned Kim Basinger's name, and she won the Oscar for the performance, yeah. and it was a surprise, I think, to see her taken seriously in cinema again because she hadn't been for a very long time. I mean, the early 90s were not her best window. No. And Hanson casting her is almost as important as Hanson casting Spacey uh, to sort of be the audience draw. And at the same time, to legitimize her performance in the way that he did with all the Veronica Lake stuff, it's just, it's really complex and interesting. And I... I was honestly surprised to see Basinger do it because she hadn't seemed interested in complex and interesting for the longest time. So that's the other real surprise to me is that you come out of this film with this new appreciation for someone who was... She wasn't necessarily a joke, but she wasn't making good movies for a very long stretch of time. She and Melanie Griffith were sort of competing for worst big-budget blockbuster roles. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you have to take her seriously again. You're, like, you're forced to take her seriously within the film. And, and she is such a crucial part of the film, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and it, 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 there's, there's, it's the one respect, well, no, it's not the only respect, but it's one, one significant respect in which I think LA Confidential is superior to Usual Suspects. Usual Suspects has a very instrumental view of its female characters. Yeah, they barely exist. They barely exist, and where they do exist, they exist uh, as levers to be used against the men. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> And that, that beat is hit again and again. And I think, yeah, Kim Basinger's um, role in L.A. Confidential, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's pivotal. It's, it's relatively little screen time. But she, she is, her story weaves in and out of Exley's and Bud White's in a way that is absolutely thrilling. And apparently, uh, um, I'd forgotten this, but that doesn't happen in the novel either. It's uh, Inez Soto, oh. um, the, the, the woman who's raped, right. who becomes a sort of romantic... Um, bone of contention. Okay, so between, they just sort of harmonise the characters. Yeah, um, and I think it's yeah, it's it's a, it's incredibly watchable, incredibly powerful, and of course it builds it builds up to that moment when uh, when Bud realises that she slept with Exley as well, and 
it's, it's, it's a turning point for, for him. God, and then, that, then you immediately go to the fight, don't you? The fight in the records room yeah. where, um, where he almost beats Exley to death. Which you, again, need. You have to have that violence between them because even though it is the standard buddy beat where you know we, we hate each other and we love each other, it's ugly and it's mean and there's no honor to it and Exley is just pulped. There's, yeah. there's no competition either. There is no question as to who's going to get the better of the other. And it's, yeah, again, it's the kind of thing where I just imagine people who'd never seen Russell Crowe in a movie before trying to figure out what's going to happen because you don't know these guys that well. They're probably going to survive, but who knows? It, you, you know, At this point, there's so much blood in the film that all bets are off. It yeah. could be that nobody wins. And so coming back, coming back to Kim Basinger, she, she got one of only two Oscars, didn't she, that the film yeah, screenplay. got? The, the other one was screenplay, yeah. Um, it, was, it was up for many, many more. I think eight in total. I'm probably wrong about that. It might have been nine. But it was, I mean, it was 1997, and it was steamrolled by Titanic. And yeah. Canada will never forgive it for uh, taking screenplay away from uh, Adam Goyen for The Sweet Hereafter, but let's face it, that wasn't going to happen. But, um, but then it immediately, sort of, so after, after sort of being you know, relatively snubbed at the Oscars, I think it went from strength to strength in terms of critical reception. Mm-hmm. It ended up being named repeatedly on Best of the Year list and then on Best Ever list. Yeah. Well, this happens all the time. People don't respond immediately to a genuinely original treatment of something. They're thrown back, they're back, they're, they're kiss, kiss, bang, bang, uh, just to go back to Shane Black, took, mm. what, five years to be taken seriously, to be properly appreciated, and yet it's the reason that Downey's comeback started. Everybody said Iron Man. I was like, no, if you look at kiss, kiss, bang, bang, that's the role that got him into the Marvel Universe. That's what made it possible. And that almost sank without trace here. It did. Again, came to TIFF, barely released. Uh, Warner, again, Warner Brothers, I don't know, they, they tried. But, uh, yeah, it just... It's the kind of movie, LA Confidential specifically, is the kind of movie that you need a second viewing of to appreciate what it gets right. The first time, you're just in awe of what it does. Yeah. And then watching it again, you can see the pieces moving and understand how, especially if you know the book, which I came to afterwards, I was just dazzled by how much had been, not how much had been left out, but how much had been worked in. Yeah. Uh, and, and formed into a cinematic narrative. He, he said, um, Hansen said to um, one of the production crew, um, this, this is a crappy anecdote because I can't remember who he was talking to, but he said, um, I want all of this and this and this, I want all of this detail present, and I want it way in background. And I think that was his approach throughout, you know, just to, to sort of create this incredibly rich texture, but not to let it detract from the characters, you know, to constantly come back and come back and come back to the core cast but that's what makes it so interesting is the sense of life going on everywhere that there is so much more happening that they can't interact with there's just no time yeah and their focus is on this case which makes it even more obvious that you know it it brings their obsessions into play because if you don't have time for the rest of the world then whatever you're chasing must be the the most important thing I think I think you know in terms of reception Hanson made a very smart move in um, exhibiting a can Mm. Which I think was it was him, not Warner, that made that decision. Yeah, they very rarely bring things there um, because their their point of view is you know if you, you're running the risk of losing, and if you lose, then you're a loser. Um, so so you know, why uh, why take the chance at all? Um, and of course, it was received extremely well. So it had that sort of that momentum behind it when it uh, when it had its US release. Yeah, the French would have loved it anyway. I mean, it's just it's a complex American narrative that interacts with cinema as history. Yeah, so, and they and they sort of share the credit of inventing noir, don't they? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Certainly, they take all the credit for it. Really, I mean, they've earned it. 
but the yeah the response was was coming out of there became this is something to watch this is something to to be ready for and then when it came to TIFF the scheduling of the theatrical release seemed to take the wind out from under it I'm, I still don't understand why but I mean 20 years later it's no one's arguing with the place of, with, with its place in the canon now no it would be very difficult to find someone who doesn't think it's all that good it's it's a remarkable piece of adaptation and, and structure I just yeah I I really like revisiting it. it. It would be one of the movies I took to a desert island, assuming mm-hmm. that the desert island had electricity so I could play DVDs. Yeah. I figured I would just rig a bicycle of some sort to power it. Yeah. I mean, we have to have that. Or a thousand hamsters in a wheel. Sure. But, uh, but they'd get caught up in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> they'd stop. Uh, the final question on the podcast is always the same and, and oddly pertinent here. Um, what of LA Confidential have you borrowed, referenced, stolen, incorporated into your creative DNA? Is there anything that you might have used in terms of adaptation? Um, not in terms of adaptation. I think you know the, the inspirational thing about it, or one of the inspirational things about it, is that it's it's just luminous in terms of making the characters uh, front and center and making everything depend on the character, the character journeys, the character the character arcs. Um, it's so easy, I think. It's certainly easy if you've got a background in writing monthly comic books, as I do, mm-hmm. um, to get hung up on plot mechanic. Um, and the moment you lose sight of the characters, you are lost. And LA Confidential is a film that never for a single second loses sight of that. Yeah. And as far as the... Um, I'm sorry, I blanked on the title, The Boy With... Boy, the Boy on the Bridge. The Boy on the Bridge. I keep saying Boy With Bucket. I know that's not right. <laughs> That's an old. That's, old, that's old. the third book in the trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> it's an old Neil Phillips, uh, Stephen Wright joke. Uh, I like to go to the. Um, I like to go to the art gallery and name all the untitled paintings. Boy with bucket. <laughs> um, so how do you? Because that book, as I understand it, having not read it, is related to the existing work. Uh, Girl with all the gifts. They are at least in the same general space. Yeah, it's that. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's another freestanding. It's a freestanding novel set in the same world. Okay. Um, it's not quite a prequel and it's not quite a sequel because it starts before Girl with all the gifts and it finishes after. Okay. Um, but it's it's very much playing in that same in that same sort of sandbox. And I think I think it sort of um, it comes at the same events from a different angle. And it kind of illuminates them. In, in, a, in a way that I think will be pleasurable for, pleasurable for people who've read the first novel okay. but you can read it completely by itself okay it's just such an interesting uh, structural conceptual challenge to go back in when the story you've already told is intentionally so self-contained and, and of course you get to the end of Girl With All The Gifts and um, yeah my, my publishers yeah. Were, were quite keen for me to do a sequel they said you know quite early on would you, would you consider doing a sequel and I pointed out that if I did it would be um, a different genre yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't be a zombie novel it would be a political novel yeah. about building a new society it would be about um, education and uh, infrastructure and you know well we need more of those right now but, but people who liked the first novel would not, have, not necessarily have come back for that um, so I started thinking about, well, what could you do? And I thought, you know, in the negative spaces of the first novel, there's another story. It's the story of Rosie, the, the, the big armored laboratory that they find right. uh, almost empty. It's kind of like Marie Celeste. There's one corpse in the cabin. Um, so it's the story of Rosie's crew and what happened to them. But it also ends up being the story of um, an unexpected aspect of Melanie's world, which ends up shaping the future. Oh, great. I can't wait to read that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs>
My thanks to Mike Carey, whose new novel, The Boy on the Bridge, comes out May 2nd in the U.S. and Canada, and May 4th in the U.K. You can watch The Girl with All the Gifts on demand now, but I'd suggest picking up the Blu-ray when it comes out next Tuesday. The supplements are pretty fantastic. And if you're in the U.K., it's been available on disc for some time now. You can find Mike on Twitter at MichaelCarey191, all one word, with numerals for the numbers. And you can find LA Confidential on Blu-ray and DVD from 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment or Warner Home Entertainment, depending on where you are in the world. And yes, the Blu-ray does include that TV pilot. Kiefer Sutherland played the spacey role. It's weird. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at SEMCAST, S-E-M-CAST, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. Feel free to mention Rolo Tomasi. I'll understand. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you just too darn loud.